Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin along with Bruce Kelly. We are talking today with none other than Chandran Thomas. Uh, anybody that's paying attention in wealth management knows Chandran as the former president and chief executive of Northern Trust Asset Management. He resigned from that position in, or announced his resignation in May to uh, pursue some other interest. And uh, last month we learned that the other interest is uh, launching something called the Copia Group, along with uh, former Merrill Lynch executive Anthony Hoy. I wrote about this at the time and described it as a private equity firm. Shundrum was, you know, he's a super popular and busy guy, so he couldn't give me any direct interviews, which I'm, I'm still kind of holding against him. But um, I, I hope I described the new venture properly, but we'll get into all of that and uh, all the cool things that uh, Shundrun has to talk about. But uh, first, welcome to the podcast, Shundrun. Jeff, uh, good to be with you and Bruce. Let us start with the Copia Group. What is this and why would somebody leave a, a firm where you're in charge of $1.3 trillion or something like that to, to take on something that I... I am only I'm describing as a private equity operation. Well, why don't I start? Yeah, two questions there. I'll, I'll, I'll tackle them both. So first of all, uh, what is the Copia Group? Uh, now, the Copia Group is a private investing firm. Uh, we specifically uh, focus on providing capital solutions, uh, both debt and equity capital solutions, uh, to privately held lower mark lower middle market companies. And so when we're talking about lower middle market companies. We're talking about firms that generally will have somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 100 million in revenues. These are established companies. Uh, we'll come back to the kinds of firms we focus on because we talk about scalable business models. Uh, but again, uh, we're providing uh, strategic and or growth uh, capital uh, for these firms. Uh, Copia, when you think about uh, Copia, a lot of times we get to question uh, what's in the name. And I think that's very important because it's instructive for our vision, our value proposition, our mission, uh, who we are. Uh, so copia is uh, the root of the word cornucopia. Uh, and simply put, it means abundance or plenty. Uh, and Jeff, you can think of that uh, informing how we think about uh, just the balance, untapped opportunities that we see in the private markets, uh, as well as uh, what we see in terms of our particular focus uh, beyond just focusing lower, on lower middle market companies. And that's two important things. Uh, first of all, we are an impact investor. And what we mean by that is alongside uh, delivering uh, competitive uh, investment returns, we look uh, to generate positive and significant societal benefits. And in fact, Jeff, one of the distinctions of what we do is we actually have a proprietary framework uh, that we've developed in partnership with Sustainalytics, they're owned by Morningstar, uh, that focuses on social impact. Uh, the last thing I would mention about the Copia Group, and then we can come back to your other question, Jeff, is uh, the Copia Group is a diverse owned and led firm, and we fundamentally uh, believe uh, in full inclusion. And so one of the things that we do is, as part of our strategy, uh, we're maximizing the opportunity of investing with either diverse uh, owned companies, and by that we mean uh, owned and or led by uh, women or ethnically diverse individuals. And so uh, we target uh, a certain amount of our portfolio of investments uh, to be made in that regard. I think my other question is why would you leave uh, Northern Trust? But um, I can't remember my other question because that was such an excellent answer. Were you taking notes, Chandran? 
It, it, I was taking notes, and, and, and you, you did ask the proverbial why question. I, I, I knew we wouldn't get far without that. Uh, Jeff, let me say this. Uh, for any and all avoidance of doubt, um, I had a tremendous 18-year uh, 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 run at Northern Trust. Uh, that was a substantial part of my overall nearly 30-year uh, career. And um, I, I really felt like the opportunity to ultimately uh, serve as president and chief executive of our global investment management business uh, was you know, a pinnacle role uh, in my career. Uh, and so really the Copia Group is a function for me is where I would say passion, what I'm deeply interested in. I love the business of investing and I love the opportunities that I've seen emerge in the private markets meets a purpose. And so for me, uh, really the opportunity to do this, uh, the opportunity, because uh, I've done a number of entrepreneur and entrepreneurial things over the course of my career, uh, but the prospect of a building uh, and leading a diverse owned uh, firm at scale, uh, the ability to really drive this thing that I'm so passionate around, about around impact investing, uh, the ability to do it in a way where we're providing greater uh, access to capital so that we can really realize that full promise of inclusion. I mean, Jeff, uh, we've known each other for some time. And so these things are consistent with things that have been important to me over the arc of my career. And I just felt like there was a unique opportunity uh, to go in this path, given all the things that I've been blessed to experience, uh, learn the relationships I've accrued over time, uh, to really focus it in this way. You are up and running now, right? This is, uh, you guys are rolling right along? We are. So, so we launched officially two weeks mm -hmm. ago. Do you have investors at this point? That's kind of a crucial component here, isn't it? Well, as you can uh, imagine, so I want to put this in context. Uh, when you're in this business, we can't speak specifically to, say, private placements or specific products that we have. But the arc of a private investing firm, you're doing a number of things. The first thing that you're doing, and, and you alluded to it, is you're building uh, your investor base and you're raising capital. And so that's, you know, sort of the preeminent uh, first phase. And so you can think of us, A, being primarily in that phase. While you're doing that, I mean, you're doing another a number of other things as you're building out your strategy, uh, identifying uh, prospective members of your team and all those different things. And so we're very active uh, on all those fronts, including uh, beginning to uh, assess and thinking about uh, the kinds of investments we want to do. I want to go back now. I think it's important for our audience that don't know you as well as some people know you. You were at um, Northern Trust for, I think uh, you said 18 years. I calculated it at 19, but maybe you were rounding or I was. Um, and uh, and uh, you have a, a, an amazing career background. I think you've written four books, but I want to talk about the, the letter that you penned in 2020 to corporate America regarding the the racial unrest that was unfolding in the country and there was all kinds of, I mean, we all know what was happening in 2020 anyway. It was, you know, the, the beginning of an unknown pandemic and all this other stuff. Can you talk a little bit about that, that letter and that time and some of the things that unfolded from that? So Jeff, you raise a great question. And I think that as I answer this context is a little bit important because one of the things I think that's important as a leader is recognizing uh, that your voice is one of your most powerful tools. Uh, we have oftentimes positional leadership. You have a platform, whether it's large or small, uh, whereby you can wield a certain level of influence and hopefully uh, you, you want to be intentional and have a positive impact. At the time uh, that you're talking about, really there were some things leading up to that. So the specific open letter that you're speaking of 
is uh, an open letter where I was really encouraging people to quote unquote, stop the silence, right? Um, or breaking the silence, because there was a series that I, I wrote. One open letter was breaking the silence. The, the, uh, there was a letter with that, well, another one that I wrote, stop the silence. Uh, a, a third one, uh, I can't feel my pain. They all started with an initial letter that was really speaking about the importance of exercising compassion as leaders during the pandemic. And why do I give that context? Because for me, the opportunity as a leader to speak out during that critical time was important. And while I would say the one on breaking the silence is probably one of the ones that was you know, most well-read, uh, there was one months that preceded that, uh, which was really talking about how we needed to comport ourselves as leaders, really focusing on compassion through that. Now, with respect to that specific letter, you know, uh, breaking the silence, what was important for me, uh, particularly uh, being an African-American leader, is to be transparent. Because one of the things uh, that I had just observed over time, we have these issues that really sit in plain sight. Uh, but for various reasons, uh, sometimes people uh, say, for instance, in the black or the African-American community are concerned about speaking out on these issues, how you might be perceived by your colleagues or the like. And so there's almost a fear associated with that. On the other side, there are sometimes people who might be my colleagues, my majority colleagues, just feel uncomfortable with those kind of topics. They don't know how to uh, appropriately engage in that kind of dialogue. But for a variety of reasons, that silence, so to speak, keeps us from really engaging in meaningful and important ways on this issue um, that can be very divisive an issue when we start talking about structural racism and we, we talk about uh, 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 biases and all the things that go along with that. Um, it was trying to open up that dialogue. Is there a way that you've you've kind of monitored the, the impact of of some of the things that you've done like that? And, and is there a way to kind of measure it and quantify it? Yeah, so the interesting thing is, um, for me, when you're acting, um, you're acting based on what you believe, not so much to um, get a specific response or the like. What, what did I hope when I did it? I didn't remotely have in my mind, in a sense, um, that it would be picked up and captured as much as it was. I certainly did uh, do it intentionally to try to say in, in, in at least some circle of influence, can I contribute in a meaningful way to advancing this dialogue? Because what happens is if you're going to change any, in a sense, culture, it actually starts with the dialogue. So in our organizations, again, um, if you want to touch on the health of an organization, one of the first things you check is what's the nature of the dialogue going on in the organization? And I recall one uh, well-respected leader I know said something I always remembered. He said, as leaders, we have to walk the walk, but we can't forget before we walk the walk, we have to talk the talk. We have to speak very clearly and articulate what we're trying to achieve, whether it's the vision, mission, and strategy for the business, um, but also what we're trying to achieve in terms of culture, what we believe in terms of values. And that is the thing that I was intentionally looking to do. First and foremost, looking to have impact in the organization that I was a part of and was charged with leading. And hopefully, given I had a leadership role in the industry, uh, helping to move along first the dialogue, then hopefully actions 
that were to put us in a better place. And so can I measure it in terms of, uh, you know, engagement or different things like that? Not necessarily, but I will tell you where I was encouraged is the significant response uh, that it engendered, uh, not only just within my firm or within my industry segment, but it began to reverberate in terms of related, you know, sub-industries within financial services and even somewhat with, outside. And so from that standpoint, you feel like you've accomplished something well as a leader. That kind of surprises me that you you say you were surprised by the response because, I mean, you were the president and CEO of, as I said earlier, uh, Northern Trust Asset Management, not a small company. You were obviously a known entity. You hadn't just come out of nowhere. And when somebody in that position comes out and takes a stand, I would, I would have anticipated a lot of response. But I guess it just speaks to, to your humble nature. But um, how much of that and the response and reaction and, and your feelings at that time kind of framed or guided your decision to, uh, to launch the Copia Group? Or, or was that something that was in the works for a long, long time? I don't, I don't know. So Jeff, it's it's a it's a really good question. One of the things that I would observe is, you know, for some people, uh, they may articulate, you know, their career or vocational journey as if it was something that's perfectly planned over a long period of time, and you you get all to all these known steps and decision points. I think that's very much the exception and not the norm. I think for most of us, your career journey is a constant uh, move towards your due north. And you're discovering things along the way. And so when I think about, you know, my own path, if you would have asked me three years ago, did I know today uh, that I know then that I would launch the Copia Group? My answer to that would have been no. Um, but if you'd have asked me three years ago, the things that the fundamental beliefs that under, underpin the Copia Group are those things that are important to me and that I believe and that I'm striving to do more and whatever I do from a vocational standpoint, that would have been Yes. And so as I had more experiences, including uh, the things that took place during the pandemic, it just was moving me more along a continuum. And I do think um, that's one of many uh, examples of things that contribute to your thinking and help for me at least understand what do I want to accomplish in my personal uh, mandate. And so as we uh, move further down that line and I started considering what would my concrete next step would be, that's how I moved to that decision point. Join us on November 7th and 8th for the RIA Summit in Boston. We have a stacked lineup of can't-miss sessions for RIAs with topics ranging from fee-based products and services to M&A to RIA tech and much more. Visit us on bit.ly forward slash RIA Summit 22. That again is B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash RIA Summit 22 to learn more, or you can feel free to visit the events tab on investmentnews.com. See you then. I got one more here for you, and then I'm going to pass it over to Bruce. Is there a way to um, for you to kind of measure where you think we are now in terms of the situation we were in, race relation politically at, at 2020 that inspired you to, to write your letters? Um, is there a way to, I mean, do you feel like we're making progress? I, I don't think anybody would suggest that we're, we're done. Everything's good, but I'm just wondering if there, I know that's a big question, but I, I think, and if anybody can answer it, you, you can. 
So the way that I would describe my disposition on this is I, I have a very guarded optimism. Um, and, and why is that the case? I definitely have seen um, movement in certain areas. I've seen uh, examples of organizations uh, that I think have really stepped back and evaluated both in terms of you know, the culture and the practices within their organization, things that they can do uh, to drive more inclusion and then begin to take concrete steps towards that. I've seen that. But what I would tell you, Jeff, is what I've also seen, and we have to just acknowledge these realities, is there are lots of instances where people have become more schooled and what I would say the discourse around this, which is very different than taking any meaningful actions. And the reason that that's important is if we really consider in a sense the, the, the size, the scale, and the scope of the issue that we have, given um, uh, issues around structural racism, structural sexism, um, we just, structural placism. I mean, these are big issues that have created, um, I think, disequilibriums in terms of access to capital. It's, it's notwithstanding the strength of our economy here in the US, we still have held back economic opportunity and we haven't been able to flourish in many ways and it contributes to other societal ills. So this is a, to your point, a big issue. And so what I focus on most is outcomes. And so I would caution us in terms of being in a position where we assume because we've had a better dialogue that that means we've had a lot more in terms of progress. Bruce Kelly. Hey, Chandran. This is Bruce Kelly. How you doing, Bruce? Good. Am I butchering your name or no? Uh, you, you, I think you're you're right on it. I, and, and having an atypical name, uh, it, it, I, I, I don't mind saying it. It's shun, shun, shun. Like uh, if you think the word shun or, or rhyming with sun, shundron. Right. Shundron. Okay, I apologize. No problem. Uh, very nice to meet you. I, I follow, Jeff follows like the asset management side or traditionally has done so for investment news. And I follow the and cover the um, distribution side. So I have two questions for you about distribution. Sure. Basically, one a diversity question, and the other uh, uh, pertaining to your new new business and private investments and the like. So, just as a guy, I mean, you were in charge of a big, big, you know, um, asset management company with all kinds of capabilities and the like. You're very familiar with the distribution and sales arms, right, of the biggest brokerage companies and uh, 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 you know advisor rep companies in the country. I've been doing this for more than 20 years, like Jeff has at Investment News, and it just doesn't seem like there's been significant progress in diversity, um, hiring more diverse uh, advisors over the years, right? right? And there's even been a number of class action lawsuits inv involving African-Americans, involving women, involving other people and the like, um, uh, which have been settled for tens of millions of dollars, right, in, in back and compensation and back pay that was owed to people, basically. Just what's your overall take on uh, how on earth can, what are one or what are the first steps or the last steps or some steps that a, the brokerage industry can get to, to making more diverse and equal hires uh, 
right right now, you know, right. going forward. As the advisor industry gets older, right? We write about yep. that all the time. And as more and more people leave right. big firms to start their own RIAs, right? right? How does it become more diverse? Yeah. So one of the things that we have to do, Bruce, this is a really good question. And I have some 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 views and some strong held opinions on this, is we have to be comfortable rewriting some of quote unquote the rules that we have uh, established, some of them unwritten rules, in terms of who we deem qualified to occupy certain roles and how we uh, create access to those roles. Um, so case in point, when you look at many firms, you will find um, by virtue of their practices, certain very common habits. Um, it starts early on um, at the earliest point of recruitment in terms of where do we even source our entry level talent? So many times it's going to the same handful of schools, uh, looking for the, the same sort of resumes, et cetera. Other times, if you think about like the advisory business, what I found when I came into, um, you know, working for a Wall Street firm, I was somewhat, you know, surprised on some level to see that a lot of it is very much what I would describe as an apprenticeship business. And so whether it's the way that people are informally brought into the business, the way people are coached and the way that they learn the business. And so just the natural practices don't accommodate themselves, if you were to zoom out and look at them, um, to creating the greatest opportunity for more diversity and inclusion. To your square on question in terms of diversity among advisors, I think that really stepping back and saying to ourselves, what really are the criteria and the qualities that someone has to have to be successful in a particular role? And has the formal and informal criteria that we have put in place uh, really done us well in terms of attracting uh, the not only the, 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 the widest array most qualified and talented people, but the most uh, diverse and inclusive set of people. I mean, I think if we look at our outcomes, I mean, you said it uh, yourself, the facts speak for themselves, but we can't presume that uh, many of these talented individuals that might not have what we consider to be quote unquote uh, traditional backgrounds cannot be uh, successful in these regards. And so those are the things that we have to uh, change if we're going to be more successful at getting uh, diverse candidates in. Um, I would love to see that. I, I, and I, it's interesting that you, you, you point out what you, you said, because I'll, I'll make this last observation. Given the significant um, uh, shift that we're going to see, because as you said, lots of advisors are similarly aged. I mean, uh, I think it's the average business. It's in their right. late 50s, I believe. The, the, yeah. the, the, and so that means there's going to be a significant transition in uh, a needed influx of talent over the next decade plus. And so it, 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 is a, it is an opportunity right in front of us if we choose to seize it to really make significant progress in diversifying the industry. Well, I like that, uh, you know, but I wish I could be optimistic. Um, I know some of the big banks out there are really working hard to hire uh, more uh, diverse people into various training programs. They're creating more training programs. They're going back to training. They have these bank operations attached to brokerage operations. They have online sent, you know, online brokerages that they can train people in before they become full-on wealth managers and the like. 
So I think there's plenty of opportunities out there. We'll see if they execute, right? We can talk yeah. about it in three to five years or 10 years or whatever. But Bruce, it's worth pausing there because I, I want to say this in, in, in a constructive way, but a very direct way. Oftentimes we say, um, you know, organizations are working hard at diversity. Um, and, and, and here's the interesting thing. I spent my career in the financial services business and I can tell you, I get, I get rewarded and compensated based on outcomes. It's important that I make effort, but I don't get rewarded based on that. And so I think what we, where we have to challenge ourselves is we can't just simply accept, quote unquote, we've been working hard. Because if oh, working course. hard means that we've been making um, uh, an exerted, uh, if, we, if we've been making a significant effort to do the same things that we know didn't produce the results we wanted in the past, I don't know that we should be happy about that. I don't know that we should reward that. I think we should challenge ourselves to say more. If we haven't gotten the outcomes that we sought uh, historically, maybe we need to be working differently. And maybe we should prize people that are innovating. Maybe we should prize people that are able to find people that I know are, are wonderfully talented and absolutely can do these jobs if given the chance. And so I think we have to be careful not to prize uh, uh, the fact that people are, quote unquote, saying that they're working hard, doing the same things that they've been doing for years. No, I get it. It just seems that there are more some of the big institutions out there. They're creating more ways to get into the firm. Yes. Which which makes it, you know, if I can't get in as a pure, uh, you know, broker trainee because I wash out, maybe I can get in as a bank working at a bank somehow and work up gradually to that and get my skill set up or something. That It just seems to me within the past few years, they have the big institutions have changed somewhat a, a, along those lines, you know. Secondly, what I wanted to ask you about was you're working in the world of private investment. What do you see as the opportunities there, you know, and how do you weigh the private markets versus the public markets? And I know you're working to yeah. kind of to smaller or mi working to uh, invest in smaller to middle market companies. But it's fascinating, the world of private investment. I know you can't you can't put up a tombstone, right? You have these tombstone right. laws. You can't you can't pitch any of your things that you're talking about here. But I mean, is it is it more broadly? Is it REITs? Is it real estate? Is it is it loans? Is it what what so, are the opportunities and how are you going to communicate those opportunities to advisors going forward, do you think? So let me tell you how, how I can, I can um, give you perspective around it. So first of all, if you think about what's been happening over the past, gosh, it's going on, you know, uh, nearly a decade and a half post the crisis. You know, one of the things that you heard people talking about a lot is the debate between active and passive. But something that was happening in a significant way is the, can, the significant shift that we started to see in terms of assets flowing to private markets. And there are a variety of reasons for that. And that has been pretty substantial. And I think that will continue to directionally be the case. And so within the sub-asset classes in the private markets, you look at everything from venture to early stage, uh, PE, obviously uh, private equity, uh, private credit, uh, uh, real assets. And I think you're going to continue to see that directional flow. I think there are some of the asset classes that even in the current environment uh, are positioned relatively well. 
I think in particular, uh, you think about people diversifying their portfolios and maybe the increased interest in areas like real assets or private credit. Now, when you think about specifically what, what we're focused on, um, the way I would best articulate it to you is we have some fundamental beliefs that speak to the opportunity set. Uh, one is this first belief on these boundless opportunities that are untapped in the private markets. And so when we say lower middle market, I want to be clear. There are significant numbers of companies and opportunities there, and that would be the fastest growing part of the middle market. So we're not talking about a small opportunity set, but we actually are talking about companies that have been relatively underserved. So we think that's uh, significant. Uh, and so we want to focus on businesses that have the potential to really scale there. The second thing we, we, we talked about, and I alluded to this earlier in uh, one of Jeff's question, is our focus on social impact. And we think that the private uh, markets are ripe uh, to really have an intersection with the trend that we see towards sustainability and social responsibility. And you even see in successive uh, generations of investors, as money is transitioning generations, this focus in this area. So I think we're right at the nexus of how uh, investors are thinking about investing. They're not looking to trade off competitive investment returns, but they're looking to have an impact with their dollars. So that's the second part of the focus. The third thing I would tell you in terms of an opportunity set that, that we see is this opportunity to provide kind of more tailored and bespoke financing solutions that are less dilutive to existing equity owners. And so if you can think about that, uh, whether it's offering solutions that include uh, private credit or hybrid solutions of credit and preferred equity and the like, I think that people are looking to say, how can I have a solution that's the best structure uh, for uh, the actual company? And then it also allows you to provide the best risk return trade-off. The last thing uh, ties to this belief that we have around full inclusion. And so if you think about this fact, uh, whether you look at women-owned businesses that form at a much faster rate than uh, their male counterparts, or if you look at ethnically diverse owned uh, business operators that, that form new businesses at a much faster rate than their diverse counterparts, what we see is they don't have a formation issue. They have a scaling issue, which is largely an access to capital issue. So I view that as a huge opportunity set. If you can unlock both financial and social capital to help these businesses scale, we think that uh, that that uh, leads into a significant investment opportunity. I mean, literally over the next several decades. What's the, and my last one is the credit quality of the landscape of the credit quality out there right now. What's your, what's your take on, uh, on that as you dip your toe and, or wade into this uh, new area for you? So, I mean, when we think of um, sort of credit quality and maybe more broadly speaking, um, the health of uh, businesses, you know, it, it's going to be somewhat relative. What we see at the time uh, and place that we set, right, is that um, there are a lot of businesses that from a, a balance sheet standpoint, a cash flow standpoint, are in, say, a better relative position than they were, say, uh, when we headed into uh, what was what we knew as the financial crisis uh, or the last or, or that last, you know, quote unquote, great recession. We saw, although it was a, a relatively shorter test when uh, when we saw the onset of the pandemic, you know, companies were able to manage uh, liquidity reasonably well, and so uh, held up uh, uh, fairly well there. 
Now, that being said, I think where we sit today, we're looking at something uh, different, right? We potentially are looking at um, a recession. Um, it matters whether it's short and shallow or if it's something more extended, um, because a more extended recession will always put pressure uh, on uh, companies that are sort of at the margin of credit quality. If you ask me how I think about it over the arc of time, I think we're going to run into uh, an environment that's going to create a, a, a fair amount of opportunity over the long haul. Because I think uh, companies that can do strong underwriting and good due diligence are going to find really good opportunities in this market because what we're seeing is valuations are being reset and becoming more reasonable. And so, you know, I actually look at this, uh, you know, some of the, in a sense, disruption that we see prospectively uh, creating an opportunity. That's great. Thank you so much. Shundran, I, I just have a couple of quick ones here for you, and then I'll let you go because I know there's a big Chicago Bears game tonight that maybe you want to get to. There is. Um, the, uh, <laughs> is the, the plan of the Copia Group to exclusively benefit businesses owned by minorities and women? Or is there a kind of a parameter or some wiggle room there? So, so I'm actually very glad you asked that question because it's an important clarifying question. And so one, the short answer to that is no. So when we think about, think about a funnel of investment opportunities, right? The first thing we say as part of the funnel is we're looking for great lower middle market companies. And again, we gave you some, some, some sort of transactional uh, thoughts around that. You're talking about maybe revenue in the 10 to 100 million range, a positive uh, cash flow and cash flow dynamics. We want businesses that are scalable. So we're not looking for lifestyle business, businesses that really have real growth potential. So think about that as the starting point of the funnel, right? The second thing that we are looking for, because we are focused on social impact, is we want to uh, invest in and with and alongside uh, business operators and, and com uh, uh, that are focused on managing their business in a, in a, in a sustainable way and, 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 and really being socially responsible, because we think that's consistent, not only with creating societal businesses, but I want to be clear on this. We think those kind of innovators also have the potential to produce superior investment returns. So think about that being one of the things. The, to your point, if you're driving social impact from our standpoint, you don't want to limit the kinds of uh, uh, business operators that you can work with. So in that sense, we want to look across all demographics. The thing that you bring out um, that is specific to us is we are saying that we want to leverage and emphasize the ability to invest in companies that are owned and led by women and ethnically diverse business operators. And so what you uh, would see then, uh, Jeff, is that will be a meaningful portion of our uh, portfolios. That's a, a, a way that we also think we can distinguish ourselves and what we deliver, but we won't exclusively do that. Really good stuff. Great candid answers, answers from Chandran Thomas, the Copia Group. We'll be watching you and seeing uh, how this thing continues to grow. And thank you very much for taking the time with us today. Yeah, good luck with the new venture. Thank you. My pleasure, gentlemen. All right. Thanks, Jeff. That was another episode of the Investment News Podcast. If it's Monday, it's time for another podcast. We want to thank our special guest, Shundran Thomas. We also want to thank Angelica Hester, our producer, you can find the, the podcast at investmentnews.com, of course. You can also find it on all those 
places you like to listen to your podcasts, such as Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple. Please follow us on Spotify. If you want to reach out uh, to Jeff and ask him for his football tips or, or the like, he can be reached on Twitter uh, at the handle at Benji Ryder. My handle is at BD News Guy. Stay tuned, and we'll be talking to you next week. Thank you.